that is uh, the Old Testament and the New Testament and um, issues pertaining to the fact that many people um, particularly something that features in a lot of the New Atheist writings again uh, will try and uh, set up the idea of a contrast between the God depicted in the Old Testament the God depicted in the New Testament and whether there is uh, a real uh, self-contradiction within the biblical whole as it were um, and also the fact that a lot of the uh, passages that folk like uh, Christopher Hitchens and so on will focus on as being um, ethically problematical uh, with the Bible, uh, to look at a, a specifically you know, Christian uh, view of God and suffering, come from uh, the Old Testament. And so you might um, think of comparing uh, a column of Old Testament texts and a column of New Testament texts and see the sort of thing that we're talking about. And if on the one hand we have uh, Sodom and Gomorrah and the surrounding towns gave themselves to sexual immorality and perversion and they serve as examples to those who suffer the punishment of eternal fire. Or uh, do not be afraid of those who kill the body but cannot kill the soul. Rather be afraid of the one who can destroy both soul and body in hell. And on the other hand, our other column, we have... Uh, the Lord is compassionate and gracious and slow to anger and abounding in love. The stranger who resides with you shall be to you as the native and you shall love him as yourself. But the interesting thing about these two columns is that our first column are all from the New Testament and our second column from the Old. Not the other way around as I sort of sneakily suggested. Uh, which at least highlights to us a potential issue of what a scientist would call data picking. Simply trawling through a text uh, for verses that seem to fit with your preconception and then using those to bolster a certain view. Um, whereas I think that would show that the, the overall picture at least has got to be a little bit more complex than... Um, Simply, you know, Old Testament, nasty God, New Testament, nice God. There's something more complex and nuanced going on here uh, in this uh, collection of literature. As a philosopher, I'm very interested, in, of course, in actually parsing the questions that get put to me and thinking of, well, how would I really put the question in the right way before I even start going about trying to answer it? So in terms of, is the God uh, different in the Old Testament compared to the New Testament? Well... Was God himself different in Old Testament times to when New Testament times came along? Well, I think uh, the only answer for a Christian on that one is no. There's no sort of inherent difference within the nature of God. Was God perceived or presented differently between the Old Testament and the New Testament? Again, I think for the Christian, the only answer there can actually be yes, at least to a degree. I put it like this. On the one hand, I think that Christianity necessitates there being differences between the Old Testament and the New Testament. I mean, if there were no differences, then Christianity would be Judaism, and it's not. But on the other hand, those differences shouldn't be overemphasized, particularly not by just data-picking verses that, that fit that overemphasis. 
uh, Charles Hodge, a particularly famous theologian from the 18th, 19th century, talked about the idea of progressive revelation. So the progressive character of divine revelation in the scriptures is recognized in relation to all the great doctrines of the Bible. What at first is only obscurely intimated is gradually unfolded in subsequent parts of the sacred volume until the truth is revealed in its fullness. God, in other words, you could say, starts with people in the ancient Near East where they are to move them over time to a a more and more accurate understanding of where he is, as it were. And of course, for the Christian, the ultimate uh, full revelation of God only comes when Jesus himself comes on the scene because that is God in the flesh. The Old Testament, for example, just to point out some of these differences that you have to recognize as being genuine, um, lacks any if uh, concept, really, of much of an afterlife. There are some hints here and there, but there's certainly no hev- uh, notion of heaven and hell in the way that we get in the New Testament, for example. So this is a quote from Isaiah, prophet from the Old Testament, talking about for the grave... Those in the grave cannot praise you. Death cannot sing you those praises. Those who go down to the pit cannot hope for your faithfulness. There can be no relationship with God when you're dead, says Isaiah. Well, that view certainly shifts by the time we get to the New Testament. Um, Certainly, while there are foreshadowings that can be looked at in some of the linguistics and so on in the Old Testament, data that would compel any kind of Trinitarian notion of God really only becomes clear in the New Testament, and so on. So there are shifts. Uh, which really gets us into the whole uh, business of hermeneutics and building up a, an, a, a sort of a coherent theological picture from this data set in the scriptures that is having differences and shifts of perspective over time. And you get into various uh, rules of good hermeneutics. That's how to read text right. Um, consider the relationship between the whole and the part. Read the obscure in light of the clear. Interpret through the person of Jesus, particularly a significant one for the Christian there. And the new can reinterpret or replace the old. Just a, a couple of examples from things on that list about the, the whole and the part. If I go to Psalm 14, verse 1... The Bible itself says there is no God. They are. It's the, the word of the Lord. Is this, hang on a minute. That's a bit difficult. Um, what's going on there? Well, obviously, it's because I've just abstracted a part from the whole out of context. If you look at the context, fools say in their heart, there is no God. They are corrupt. Their deeds are vile. There is no one who does good. In other words, when we want to sin, we all pretend that God's not looking and we're all fools. This is uh, Bruegel's picture of this ship of fools. Um, reading the obscure in the light of the clear, interpret through the person of Jesus. And that really feeds into this point about the new interpreting or replacing the old. Because, for example, Jesus himself uh, says, uh, you know, it has been said, quote from the Old Testament, from Deuteronomy, anyone who divorces his wife must give her a certificate of divorce. But I tell you, I tell you that anyone who divorces his wife, except for marital unfaithfulness, causes her to become an adulteress. So he is replacing something from the deuterocanical laws from Moses and so on, and saying, yeah, you've heard it said in your Old Testament scriptures, guys, but I'm here to tell you that. And, And so the Christian would 
take what Jesus says over what Moses said. Nevertheless, some Old Testament rules do seem odd to us in our culture. It is a very ancient and alien culture that you're dealing with when you read the Old Testament. And it's significant to note, I think, that God's what's called his Old Testament covenant, his sort of uh, relationship with people, in the Old Testament is a socio-political marriage. That's the way to think of it, I think, uh, with Israel. And that differs from Jesus' uh, new covenant in my blood that he talks about at the Last Supper, uh, which he sees as a fulfillment of the Old Testament covenant to bless all nations with a personal relationship with God through grace in Jesus' name. But there are, I think we have to admit, some troubling passages in the Old Testament. How should we approach them? Often learning more about the original culture does help a bit. Realising that we get greater understanding over time helps a bit. If the, if the direction of travel is lessening the issues, that's at least better than if the direction of travel, the more you study it, is making the issues more and more problematical. And I think the most problematical issue, and the one that uh, the New Atheist and so on raised the most, for fairly obvious uh, current uh, reasons, is the picture of Israel at war in the Old Testament. Yes, their enemies there were a political and spiritual threat, not just a threat to this uh, nation, because nations uh, had to sort of live in a fairly cutthroat world back then, but also a threat, therefore, to God's plan of revelation and blessing to the whole of humanity through that national relationship. And yes, things like Canaanite uh, religious practices, this is a, a statue of the god Baal from the 13th century BC, Canaanite religious practices included things like child sacrifice. William Blake's picture of uh, children being thrown into the flames of Moloch there. Um, so, you know, uh, don't uh, paint... Uh, the enemies of uh, Israel in a uh, warm uh, glowing light as if uh, they are the innocent party uh, in what's going on. Nevertheless, that doesn't sort of resolve all the issues for us. One thing I've found helpful to discover is that in the ancient Near East it was very common to exaggerate, to use hyperbole, to exaggerate in your claims about victory in battle. And there's a good little micro, microcosm of this issue in Joshua 10 verse 20, where it says, So Joshua and the Israelites defeated them completely. Completely defeated them. But a few survivors managed to reach their fortified cities. And you get examples like this all the way through the parallel literature from the age so this is a quote from uh, Professor Kenneth Kitchen, e Egyptologist, um, from his book on the reliability of the Old Testament. Um, wonderful tone to get hold of if you're interested in Old Testament archaeology and Near East background and so on. And he says, the type of rhetoric in question was a regular feature of the military reports in the second and first millennia BC. In the latter 15th century, Tuthmosis III could boast the numerous army of Mitanni was overthrown within the hour, annihilated totally like those now non-existent, whereas in fact the forces of Mitanni lived to fight many another day. Um, about 840 BC, Mesha, king of Moab, could boast that Israel, Israel, he's one of the enemies here, Israel has been utterly perished for always. A rather premature judgment, if you take it literally. Uh, it's in this frame of reference that the Joshua rhetoric has to be understood. 
Uh, another Old Testament scholar called uh, Richard Hess actually argues that the apparent, what just kind of reads to our um, Western eyes in just reading the surface of the text, what apparently seems to us as, as sort of Israel attacking and annihilating civilian populations in cities, is actually stereotypical ancient Near East warfare language that really, in the biblical context, is applying to attacks on military installations, military forts or garrisons, and particularly looks at the term translated in our Bibles as city. Um, yeah. He says, we know that many of these cities, in inverted commas, were used primarily for government buildings. And the common people lived in the surrounding countryside. You kind of had a sort of uh, governmental military hub surrounded by a lot of agricultural farming people, civilians. Uh, and it's interesting to note from archaeology that when you look at the archaeology of places like Jericho and so on that are mentioned in the Joshua accounts, the archaeology indicates that those cities had minimal, if any, civilian populations and ties in uh, with that as well. Of course, any of such issue uh, when you're raising, uh, like the case of some of the warfare uh, descriptions in the Old Testament, they are just particular examples of this broader issue of the problem of evil. They're a specific case of a more general issue. But um, even atheist philosophers like William L. Rowe here, I quoted, generally admit now that there is no um, logical contradiction between the existence of evil and suffering and the existence of a God who has all of the traditional qualities of omniscience and omnipotence and omnibenevolence. Uh, Rowe himself says there's a fairly compelling argument for the view that the existence of evil is logically consistent with the existence of the theistic God. And there, actually, he's referencing Plantinga's free will defense. So the general discussion, at least amongst philosophers of religion anyway, has moved on uh, in recent decades from talking about the possibility of is there a, a sort of head-on contradiction between belief in God and belief in evil and suffering to saying, well, okay, maybe they don't contradict each other, but maybe it's an issue where the existence of evil and suffering or so much evil and suffering or certain types of evil and suffering counts against, weighs against the existence of a God like that, at least to some degree. And um, I thought Keith did a good job of pointing out some of the flaws with that. Uh, the Can you make the leap from I don't see to therefore there couldn't be a reason that God could have, particularly given the difference between the size of an omniscient mind and the size of my mind. I think maybe he could see things that I don't. So that's not a very strong inference. But even if you said, yeah, maybe there's some weight to that, maybe evil and suffering or some of these particular examples count against believing in that kind of a God a bit. You still have to weigh that one argument in the balance against all the other arguments and reasons you might have for believing in that kind of a God. I think at the end of the day, it's a little bit like um, building a jigsaw, building your world view. And if you've got a jigsaw and you've got quite a lot of the edges done and you've got the corners in place, and, but you haven't finished the jigsaw, you don't think you know everything, Maybe you're finding some real frustration with some of the bits that you can't quite get into place. You don't know, you know whether this bit should go there or over here somewhere. You don't know how it all fits together. You're getting frustrated with this bit because you can't kind of seem to make sense of it. But you know, you're gradually building your picture and over time you know you've been frustrated with other bits and then you did find where they go eventually and you haven't got all the information in yet. There will come a stage where you've got 
a picture. It's not all done. Some bits are frustrating. But maybe you think you've got enough of the picture done that you're fairly confident about what the picture's depicting. And I think it's like that with Christianity or choosing a worldview. I don't think you're ever going to find a worldview that has no problems with it because worldviews are all constructed by people trying to interpret reality and we're finite. But what you do want to look for is the worldview with the fewest issues. The worldview where you're pretty sure what the picture is of. You know, is the picture of a, a theistic universe where there's some kind of benevolent mind behind things or is the picture of a purely material universe that doesn't care about humans, doesn't care about values, doesn't care about um, such a thing as good or evil, at least within a theistic picture of reality. And that's more a topic we're going on to uh, in, I think it's next week's uh, issues, looking at the relationship between values and God and so on. At least in a theistic picture of the world, you can justify saying that some things are morally wrong, which I don't think you can say on a purely materialistic view of things. So, let me leave you with that sort of uh, dangler uh, for next week's issues. <laughs> Thank you very much.